turn together in our Bibles now to Romans chapter 15 and verse 1. Romans 15 verse 1. The story is told of two congregations that were located only a few blocks from each other in a small community. They thought it might be better if they would merge and become one united, larger, and more effective body rather than two struggling churches. Good idea, but they were not able to pull it off. The problem? They could not agree on how they would recite the Lord's Prayer. One group preferred, forgive us our trespasses, while the other group demanded, forgive us our debts. So as the local newspaper reported, one church went back to its trespasses, while the other returned to its debts. This morning, I'm going to be talking with you about working for unity. And it's work, isn't it, as that story demonstrates. Throughout chapter 14 in Romans and our study of what I called issues of gray, I told you over and over again that issues of gray are not more important than the unity of the church. Now, I'll tell you that all of this isn't even primarily about issues of gray. It's about unity. Chapter 14, on into chapter 15, where we are today, the main point is about unity. Now, you keep your finger here in Romans 15. We're coming back to it, I promise. But turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, and let's read the first three verses of Ephesians 4 together. At least I'll read it, and you follow along as I read. It says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. Listen to verse 3 again. Diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit. Diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit with the peace that binds us. I want all of us to understand that the church is united. It is. It can't help it. Through the Spirit, in salvation, because as Christians we are individually united to Christ, a part of His body, a part of His family, the church is united. So we aren't to work to provide unity. Instead, 
we are worked or to work to preserve the unity that has already been provided to us by the Spirit of God. We are to keep it. That's what I mean this morning when I speak of working for unity. So how do we do this? What must we do? Well, that's the subject of our passage today. Romans 15, beginning to read in verse 1. Follow along with me there as I read. It says, Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us must please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Messiah did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement allow you to live in harmony with one another, according to the command of Christ Jesus, so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with a united mind and voice. We find here five things that we must do to be working for unity. As we've already seen in that Ephesians 4 passage, we are to be working for unity. As individual members of the body of Christ and as Individual members of a local church like this, we are always to be working for unity, working to build that unity, working to preserve and to keep that unity. And it's in this passage that we find five things that we'll be doing if we're working for unity. The first thing that we must be doing to be working for unity is we will seek to please others. If we're working for unity, if unity is important to us individually, we will seek to please others. And that's what we find in verses 1 and 2, so look there again. It says, now we who are strong, and you'll remember in the context, going back to chapter 14, that strong is a reference to those who are strong in the faith. It's not that they have strong faith. It's they're strong in the faith. A synonym for that would be mature in the faith. Understanding the faith. Understanding the gospel. Understanding all of the freedom that we have through salvation in Jesus. Now we who are strong, note that Paul is including himself among the strong. Now we who are strong have an obligation You know what an obligation is? It's something that you owe. So what's about to be said is something that we owe unto others, that the strong, the strong in certain situations owe unto others. Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. 
We have an obligation. We owe it to those in certain circumstances and regarding certain subjects who are weaker in the faith. We owe them something, and what we owe them is to help them bear their burdens. Their burdens in this context might be that they don't have the same freedoms in Christ that some others within the body do. They're caught up on those things. They're really bothered or really grieved by people doing certain issues of grace. To those that are stronger in the faith in these situations, he says we have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. To bear them even. Now I'd love to be able to stand before you this morning and say that getting along within the church is an easy thing to do because everyone individually is easy to get along with. And I heard a chuckle. You know why that person chuckled? Because they know how silly that sounds just to say it. We all know if we're five years old that everybody isn't easy to get along with. And we probably know deep down inside that there are times where I am not easy to get along with. Or you are not easy to get along with. How then do we maintain unity uh, among a group of people that is so varied as this ancient church would have been, as our churches today are, how do we maintain a spirit of oneness and togetherness when all of the differences exist, even when there are people that aren't easy to get along with, even when there are people that are offended by every little thing? How do you do it? Well, one way you do it is by bearing their weaknesses. That's what it means to seek to please others. We're looking out for them. We want to please them. We want to consider them. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 puts it this way. Carry one another's burdens. Same language, same imagery as our passage in Romans 15.1 today. Carry one another's burdens. And from Romans 15.1, sometimes the people themselves are the burden. They're the burden to be dealt with. Carry them. Carry one another's burdens. In this way you fulfill the law of Christ. Well, that connects back to something that we saw in Romans chapter 13, what did we learn in Romans 13 about the fulfillment of the law? It's love, right? To love is the fulfillment of the law. So bringing it all together today, to love someone is to bear with that person, to bear their weaknesses, to sometimes to carry them because of the burden that they place. It means sometimes that they're going to carry you as a burden or Carry you in all of the burdens that you have. Several weeks ago I was reading and I came across a, a wonderful illustration from World War II of how the church should get along in this area of issues of gray and, and maintaining and preserving unity. During World War II, 
as ships traveled back and forth through the Atlantic Ocean, because of the presence of German U-boats, they could not travel alone. And so they traveled in packs and groups and convoys. And there were different ships. There were big ships. There were smaller ships. There were ships that would go really fast. There were ships that wouldn't go fast at all. But all of the ships within the group would travel at the speed of the slowest ship to ensure that they all got to where they were going safely. If individuals within a local church go to sprinting out on ahead of everybody else in the church in exercising all of their Christian freedoms, there's not going to be much unity. But if everybody in the church will remember that this thing called Christianity and doing church is dangerous water. And there's something far more dangerous out there than German U-boats. Then we will not run ahead. We will not go as fast as we can, however fast that is. We will consider everybody else that's in the group because they're a part of the group. And we want everybody to get to the other side safely. Seeking to please others includes bearing their weaknesses. And a part of that may be slowing up to their speed. Especially when it comes to these issues of grace. As we read on in verse 2, or at the end of verse 1, it says, and not to please ourselves. We who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Now we've seen that we have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of others in the church. But we also see here that we have an obligation not to please ourselves. And that's an important part of seeking to please others. It's not seeking to please yourself. Now that's really hard. Looking out for others is hard enough, but denying yourself, really difficult. Sort of a lost art. Sort of a forgotten subject among much of the church today. Uh, I, I try to keep up, read, listen, even if I don't agree with it, even if I don't like it. And, and a common theme that I hear in preaching is uh, you got to listen to your heart. you got to go your way, and you got to do your thing, and you got to dream your dream, and, and you've got to do what's going to make you happy and fulfilled in Jesus. I don't hear a lot about self-denial, self-sacrifice. But all of us that are involved in any type of relationship know that if a relationship is going to work, there has to be self-denial. There has to be self-sacrifice. That's true in marriage. It's true in parenting. It's true in friendships. It's true in families. It's definitely true in a church where typically many more people are involved. Seeking to please others includes not seeking to please ourselves. 
I've thought about this for the last few weeks at least, last couple of months maybe. And I've thought about this phrase and the way you find it here, not to please ourselves. And I, I just began reflecting over my experience having grown up in church and then for the last close to 20 years, my involvement, my experience in pastoring churches. And in thinking back, I won't put a, an exact number on the percentage But the vast, vast majority of all issues in local churches, of all problems in local churches, of all complaints in local churches have to do with what pleases individuals. They're matters of opinion. They're matters of preference, not doctrinal issues, not ethical issues, not moral issues, but issues that typically go something like this. I don't like the way we do this. I don't like the way we do that. I'd like for us to do this this way. I'd like for us to do that that way. And I'm not getting on to any of you. Hey, I think those things too. Every once in a while, Glenn sings a song, and I think, well, I don't like that song. Every once in a while, he sends me a text, says, I don't like that message you preach. No, he doesn't. You get the point? No church will have real unity, or at least the unity that he can't, it can have, as long as it's filled with individuals who think that church is simply another place for us to get what we want individually. Can't be a lot of of unity when everybody wants what they want. Because if we haven't learned this, we should have. We all want something different. I'm joking about Glenn. Can you imagine how schizophrenic our music service would be if Glenn asked everybody in the church, now what kind of music would you like? And what songs would you like sung this week? Or or the preaching program. What would you like to be preached on this week? What would you like to be preached on this week? What would you like to be preached on this week? There's no way that you could do it all. Seek to please others. And part of that is don't seek to please ourselves. And then as we read on in verse 2, we find that each one of us must please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So yet another thing that's involved in seeking to please others is working for their good. Now, how are we wired to work for our good? Because who do we love above everybody else? We love us some me. And we want to work for our good. Because when it's good for us, it's good. I don't care if it's good for everybody else. It's good for me. It's pretty good. 
But we're finding here that a key to unity is others over ourselves. Seeking to please them, not ourselves. Bearing their weaknesses rather than griping about their weaknesses. Working for their good. I do feel that I must add a warning here about working for others' good. Because a lot of us think we know what's gooder for somebody else than they know for themselves, don't we? We're enlightened. We're in the, the 36th level of being Christians. And, and, and we know even when they don't know. And sometimes we're right, but sometimes we're wrong. And I think it's because of that reason that we don't have to wonder what working for the good of someone else means. If you read on in verse 3, it says to build him up. That's what working for the good of another person means. Is it something that will build them up? And the building here is talking about spiritually. In their walk with Christ. Work for their good. And it goes back to something that we saw earlier in chapter 14. Verse 19, it says, So then we must pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. You get it? We must chase after actively, vigorously, what promotes peace and what builds up one another. If we are working for unity, which we're supposed to be doing, we will seek to please others. Second thing that we will do if we're working for unity, is we will look to the example of Jesus. We'll look to the example of Jesus. Now take this from verse 3. It said, For even the Messiah did not please himself. And I think the way that we should take that is that if anybody ever had a right to seek to please himself, it was the God-man. God alone in all that exists has a legitimate right to seek to please himself. Jesus being God of very God. The eternal Word of God, the eternal second person in the Trinity, even in His incarnation, His humanity coming to earth, if anyone's ever had a right as a person to seek to please Himself, it was Jesus. But here's what's said about Jesus again at the beginning of verse 3. For even the Messiah did not please Himself did not live a life that was totally about pleasing himself. You remember what Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served. Same word, even, is used there. It's a point of emphasis. That again, if there was ever anybody that deserved to be served, it was God come to earth in human form. But even the Son of Man did not come to be, to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that's why I say here, and that's why Paul says here in verse 3, that in order to work for unity, we must look to the example of Jesus because we find in it 
an example of the attitude that we're to have in getting along with each other and maintaining and preserving unity. One that looks not for what I can get out of this, but for what I can put into this. One that looks for not how I can be served and benefited from this, but how I can serve others and serve the body and serve Christ in doing this. Jesus even went to the extreme of giving His life in this vein. This vein of service. Verse 3 goes on to say, On the contrary, as it is written, and here Paul quotes from Psalm 69.9, a messianic psalm, a psalm that's really about the Messiah, finds its total fulfillment in the coming of Jesus. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And this was originally written of a man of God who was insulted because of his service to God. And so the insults that people made about God fell on him. Well, the ultimate fulfillment of this was in Jesus. The insults of God fell on Jesus as the messenger and the representative and the likeness of God. And why would he do that? Why would he knowingly submit to that? Because that's what he had come to do. Not his own will. He stressed that throughout the Gospels. But the will of his Father who had sent him. And in seeking to do the will of his Father, a part of that included him being insulted. And much worse than insulted. Because of his service to his father. In that we find an example of how we're to be. I'll take it a step further. We not only find an example in Jesus. We find motivation from Jesus. If Jesus lived this way. And he's the top on the totem pole. And we're not anywhere near the top. Especially we should live this way. Take a moment and turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. This is a well-known passage. And it's so well-known because of what it so powerfully communicates about the example of Jesus. The service of Jesus. What he did to bring us together. Verse 3 says that we are to do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. But in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests. After a while, you would think, and I'm, I'm as thick-headed as anybody here, I can guarantee you that. And somebody's wanting to say amen about this point. When you keep coming to passage after passage that's like this, after a while, you would think that we would begin to think, hey, we must have a problem with looking out for our own interest. We do. 
We must have a problem with not looking out for the interest of others. We do. It's not natural for us to be this way, but these are supernatural things. Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And I know that the skeptic among us is wanting to say, but if nobody, if I'm not looking out for my own interest, then who's looking out for me? Hey, Jesus can handle you. He'll look out for your interest better than you ever could. I've also found, and you have too, I mean, this isn't novel to me. This didn't originate with me. That the more that we look out for the interest of others, the more others will look out for our interest. I'm not saying that's our, our ultimate motive in it. It just works that way. Think about it this way. I know y'all get sick and tired of me talking about ball, but it's what I know. I know the Bible and ball. I'm pretty simple in life. And I don't know those two well, but those are the two things that I, that I know a little bit about. When we're out in the yard playing basketball with my kids, invariably when they first start playing basketball, do you know what they want to do? Shoot. That's all they want to do. Defense, they play it like Allen Iverson when they first start, which means zero. Passing, foreign concept. They understand you don't have to teach kids that the one who gets their names in the paper are the ones who score. And they want to score. Little League football, do you know what most of the boys ask me? When are you going to give me the ball? And to some I say, you are never going to get the ball. You will get killed. You don't want the ball. You think you want the ball. So with basketball, I try to teach my kids. Look to pass. And they think... Well, if I look to pass, I won't get to score. But if you're a passer first, people always get you the ball. Folks, you think LeBron James has any trouble getting a pass from his teammates? There's a reason everybody in the world wants to play with the dude. Because he always looks to get it to his teammate first. They all want to get it back to a guy like that. And it's that way in life. If we will be a person who genuinely seeks the interest of others, our interest being looked out for will be the least of our concerns. Verse 4, Philippians 2, Everyone should look out for his, not only for his own interest, but also the interest of others. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. See again the example of Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Again, if anybody ever had a right to use something for his own advantage, it was the God-man, but he didn't. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death. On a cross. Earlier in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write it this way. In a, in a passage, it's about giving. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. 
so that by his poverty you might become rich. I mentioned that here in verse 3, Paul is quoting from the Psalms, the Old Testament. And it's messianic. Can you think of passages in the Old Testament, the, the most famous ones that talk about the Messiah before the Messiah came? How about Isaiah 53? You ever heard of that one? And from that passage, what title do we associate with Jesus often? The suffering servant. The suffering servant. And I'm convinced that it's a message not only of Romans 15, but a message of the entire Bible. That if the people of God are going to get along like they should, they must be filled with a bunch of suffering servants. People who in their service to God and to others are willing to suffer even if the suffering involves them not getting everything that they want, not doing everything the way that they want it done, and when they want it done. That's a small part of suffering, but it's a part of suffering. And brothers and sisters, and I, cho I choose that phrase intentionally, brothers and sisters, that phrase mean anything to you? This morning I got a text from my sister. My mom and dad would have never thought it would have worked out this way when we were children that we would love each other and be so very close. Because I'm going to tell you, we didn't love each other when we were growing up. Well, we may have loved each other, but we didn't like each other growing up. I got a text from my sister this morning, 6.30, said something to this effect. I love you. I'm praying for you today for your preaching today, for your day at church. I hope you and your family and your church family have a wonderful day in the Lord. So I choose this phrase intentionally, brothers and sisters. Unity is important. And if making it happen or keeping it or strengthening it or preserving it involves our seeking to please others above ourself and our following after the example of Jesus, then we ought to do it whatever it costs. It's that important.